0: all right good morning to you this is mike smith and we kick it off this morning with the keystone xl pipeline set to be canceled now by incoming president joe biden biden is being sworn in as president tomorrow and killing off this pipeline right at the top of his to-do list multiple media sources now reporting biden set to cancel the pipeline on his very first day in office This is a brutal blow to the Alberta oil industry. They were counting on that pipeline to ship 800,000 barrels a day to the U.S. Gulf Coast. The Alberta government sank $1.5 billion into this project. Here's Alberta Premier Jason Kenney.
1: This is a matter that touches on Canada's vital economic interests. And I'm therefore confident that the government of Canada will reflect In the next uh, couple of days, the kind of priority it has placed on the construction of Keystone XL in saying that it is at the top of the bilateral agenda.
0: Okay, I'm not sure it's going to be at the top of the agenda for much longer if Biden kills it on day one of his presidency. Let's discuss now. We've got a great panel assembled for you, both sides of it. Stuart Muir is the executive director of Resource Works. He supports the pipeline. Hi, Stuart. Hey, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming. And also, Peter McCartney on the line. He's a climate campaigner with the Wilderness Committee. He's been fighting this project a long time. Peter, thanks for coming on.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Peter, let me go to you first. Your thoughts on these reports that Biden set to kill this project on day one of his presidency?
2: Oh, I'm thrilled. Um, You know, this is something that uh, Biden has long said he's going to do. It's something he was vice president uh, in office when Obama rejected this pipeline. And, you know, I think Canadians are getting a, a glimpse of what real climate leadership looks like. And, you know, Trudeau, if he wants to maintain his uh, mantle of climate warrior, is going to have to do better and try harder.
0: Well, what about Canada, though? as one of our uh, partners and allies. He seems to be doing this without much consultation with Canada.
2: I mean, this has been part of this agenda for a long time. And listen, you know, Joe Biden and his team are smart people. They have heard the pitch that Canada is making, that somehow a carbon tax justifies expanding our most polluting industry, uh, the oil and gas sector. And they're literally not buying what we're selling. And Canadians shouldn't either.
0: Okay, let me go to Stuart Muir. Stuart, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I don't see this as a, a climate issue. If climate was what Biden says it is then he would also be cancelling the 10 U.S. oil pipelines that are currently being built. He's not. He's he's only going after a foreign one, a Canadian one. It's an easy political virtue signaling exercise for him. I think Canada saw it coming a long ways off. They've been talking about it for a long time. It's not really even clear that he has the power to do this. I mean, In good faith, uh, Canada has progressed with building the pipeline. You don't just go back and you know you can't be taken seriously if you if you treat uh, uh, your agreements that way, so I think there's a lot more to run out on this thing before we can actually say that the pipeline's been killed.
0: Okay, Stuart, do you think that the company that owns the pipeline uh, knew that Biden was on his way to the White House and they were trying to work to, to save this project and one of the things they had on the table was a 1.7 billion dollar plan on a solar wind and battery powered operating system for the pipeline that would make it zero emission by 2030. What do you think about uh, Biden sort of just giving the back of the hand to that idea and just canceling it outright on day one anyway.
3: Well, it, it kind of uh, uh, causes us to question whether those who are asking for the clean energy future are that serious about it. I mean, here is a chance to take infrastructure that's needed and decarbonize it. Who's against that? It turns out that there are some people saying that, no, don't do that. And those are the people calling for decarbonization, which I don't understand because if the, Canadian energy industry is part of what a lot of industries are doing around the world, and that is to reduce the impacts of the things that it does. Uh, that okay. should be welcomed.
0: Okay, Jason Kenney and the Alberta government really broadsided by this one. And here's another clip of Kennedy uh, or Jason Kenney uh, talking about uh, Canadian oil as a good choice for the United States. Here's Kenny.
1: Here's this very simple choice either the United States has access to environmentally responsible energy produced in a uh, close democratic ally uh, or it becomes more dependent on foreign oil imports from venezuela and other opec dictatorships in the future
0: okay peter mccartney from the wilderness committee your thoughts on that you know
2: that's just such a bad argument. And if that's the argument they were making at the White House, no wonder they got the door slammed in their face. This is not about picking between Canada's oil and Venezuela's oil. Joe Biden has a $2 trillion climate plan to aggressively pursue uh, less fossil fuel development and less carbon emissions in the United States. They're saying, we don't want your oil, we don't need your oil, and we don't want anyone else's either. Um, And it's time to start making this transition.
0: Okay, they're going to have to get oil from somewhere, though. Stuart Muir,
3: your thoughts? Yeah, they will get it from other countries that don't produce it as well. There's no question. They do have the infrastructure in place today to consume heavy oil. It's a specialized ingredient. I know uh, very typically you'll hear people say, oh, heavy oil, it must be bad oil then. Well, no, it's just one of the uh, products in the spectrum of hydrocarbons that are used. And there are billions and billions of dollars worth of specialized refineries in the U.S. that need and can only use heavy oil so if they don't get it from canada yes they will get it from dictatorships like venezuela and lots of others around the world that's just reality Pe- peter it's let me- not true peter go ahead yeah no i um the,
2: what they're saying of course they're going to use oil for a while longer but canada is actively lobbying the white house to try and ban the sale of internal combustion engine cars um you know how can we be doing that at the same time we're also lobbying them to take more of our oil. If they want to use less oil, they're going to use less oil. That is exactly what the climate plan is designed to do. And you don't take more and more at the same time you are trying right. to reduce. Peter, of course, this is just one
0: pipeline, the uh, the Keystone XL pipeline. There are many other pipelines in existence and in, in construction. Of course, the Trans Mountain pipeline, top of mind for many people here in British Columbia. Do you think this development here, if Biden kills off this big project, what does it mean for the Trans Mountain pipeline, if anything?
2: You know, I think it means that Canadians need to stop giving Trudeau a pass on building this pipeline. Um, You know, he he gets to come off like a climate leader. And when Donald Trump was in the White House, you know, he looked pretty good by comparison. Uh, But they should know that climate leaders do not build pipelines. Um, Joe Biden has just made that clear as day. And so Justin Trudeau needs to reevaluate um, and pull the plug on this project and actually spend the $16 billion that he wants to spend on this pipeline on things like renewable energy and, uh, you know, transitioning the, the workers in the oil sands onto um, n- new jobs that use the same skills.
0: OK, well, I don't think Trudeau is going to cancel the project, but uh, Stuart Muir, your, your thoughts. Do you, you think the Trans Mountain pipeline is in any jeopardy?
3: Well, it could be just because uh, it's it's opposed. But, um, you know, the big winner, if we don't have TMX or any of the other pipelines, is the United States. So, of course, it's in Biden's self-interest to not have Canada getting fair market, better market value for its most valuable exports. We really rely on our exports in this country. We're improving the environmental performance of them all the time by reducing emissions. The investments in the hydrogen economy that is the future are because We have the money from oil exports. So it's needed in the transformation phase that we're in and that we should all welcome. But the reality is there is self-interest here by the U.S. Let's not be naive.
0: All right, welcome back to the show. Incoming U.S. President Joe Biden set to cancel the Keystone XL pipeline on day one of his presidency. The Alberta government has sunk over a billion dollars into this project. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney today saying they may go to court uh, to fight this. We're discussing it now with my guests, Peter McCartney and Stuart Muir. Your call, 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 in your cell terry in new west hi terry
1: hey how you guys doing okay um i'm from bc but i used to live in alberta for a while i actually liked edmonton the people were very nice um i think there's a real problem with the people in alberta the government um they don't think about the future in bc the forest industry went downhill and we diversified our economy we got like tourism uh breweries high tech uh things like that going here film industry uh, you know, it's about time maybe the government in Alberta, Jason Canning, thought about changing the economy of Edmonton. It might be difficult for a while, but they're relying basically on one wor- resource, and that's oil, and it's about time maybe to change things, right?
0: Okay, thanks for the call. Stuart, what do you think of that?
3: Yeah, um, it would be interesting to hear from the guests what the alternative to oil is, but one thing I think is important is that the energy infrastructure we have today, that is to say, if we're talking about Edmonton, Refinery Row, there's huge refineries there. There's pipelines. It's where Trans Mountain Pipeline starts from to send the oil to the coast. And it's in the in the fabric of the Edmonton economy. And when you meet people like the mayor of Sturgeon County I was meeting with, with recently, she would badly like to see this adapted to the hydrogen economy of the future. But it's not switching it out for some unknown uh, thing. It's using what we have today, these investments, to transform them over time, to keep the uh, things we don't want from oil in the ground, but keep the things we do want affordable, okay. clean energy uh, forever.
0: Okay, Peter McCartney, real real quickly, I mean, at the end of the day, the world is not going to transition off of oil overnight, so there is a transition period, and the world's got to get its oil from somewhere. So, I mean, if the United States does not get its oil from Alberta, uh, I mean, they've got to get it from somewhere.
4: They're right? currently- they're if, they're not using,
0: if they're not using pipelines, us, if they're, and if they're, not, if, if they're not using if they're not using pipelines, don't they end up using riskier methods of transporting the oil, like by rail too?
2: I mean there's there's such a small amount of oil that moves by rail in comparison to pipelines. It's it's kind of a red herring for the conversation. Um, and the truth is, you know, the United States currently gets a lot of their oil from us, and that's going to continue. Um, but they don't need to be getting more oil from us at the same time as they're actively trying to use less and less fuel. They will use less oil in 2025 than they do in 2019, in 2030 than they do in 2025, and so they don't need this 50-year infrastructure um, when they're using less and less uh, every year.
0: Let's go to Roger on the open line in Surrey. Hi.
4: Hi, Mike. I I totally agree with you. I really disagree with uh, Peter there. I think that, you know, our economy um, and the world economy is really dependent on oil. That's not going to disappear overnight. And
3: clean energy its nice and, in a hypothetical sense to talk about clean energy. But if we all switch to clean energy, you don't think that's going to leave an environmental footprint? For sure it is. I think that if
4: Keystone XL gets cancelled, the smartest thing for Canada and Alberta to do is really focus on that Mountain pipeline. Because the world needs oil and it's not going to disappear in 20 years or 50 years, maybe in 100 years about but it's not going to happen overnight.
2: Hey, I totally Peter,
0: agree with you. Thanks for the call. Peter, what do you say to that?
2: I mean, let's be clear here. The U.S. is telling us they don't want our oil. And through Trans Mountain, mm-hmm. you know, the supposed markets, it's mostly going to the United States right now, um, but apparently they want to sell it to China and just Japan and South Korea. Those countries have all set net zero emissions goals, too. Um, and so, yeah, you know, they're, they're starting from a place uh, that's different from the United States. But it's not going to be long before they catch up. And so, you know, I think the first guest that you had uh, call in there was right that Alberta needs to figure it out. It needs to have a plan. And, you know, if that's um, geothermal or solar or wind, these are all industries that are already available. They make sense. Uh, pitching hydrogen as some sort of last ditch bet to save the oil and gas industry, you know, that's. That is the industry that is pie in the sky, you know, barely uh, conceptual technology right now. Wind okay. and solar are already taking place in Alberta, and it's one of the sunniest, windiest places in the, uh, in the country. And so if they can't do it, no one can.
0: Let's go to Dave on the open line. And Are you in Fannie Bay, Dave?
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Um, I would just like to ask your guests, would they agree or not? Um, the, the one pipeline that, w- that we need for national security and our energy security is Energy East. And I believe those refineries out east also supply a lot of uh, refined fuels down to the eastern seaboard in the U.S.
0: Okay, where are we at, Stuart? Where are we at with Energy East project?
3: Yeah, well, that one is, is uh, dead as a doornail right now. I think it's possible in the future it would be there, but real- in reality... The Trans Mountain Pipeline to Vancouver is being built. It is going to supply a desirable, necessary fuel to countries like India that are building large refineries so that getting out of energy poverty is a reality for those people. Because they they can't afford $40,000 subcompact electric cars. It would be great if they could, and maybe they will in future. But we need to deal with the realities of today and ensure that we're doing it in the most environmentally responsible manner.
0: Do you think, Stuart, that with Biden set to cancel Keystone XL, that that puts even more pressure on Trudeau to deliver on Trans Mountain?
3: I think that's a fair statement.
0: Yes. What do you, and what do you think of that, Pete?
2: Peter? Absolutely not. I think it puts more pressure on him to cancel it. Um, you know, I think the oil industry is certainly going to be uh, knocking down his door asking for their last pipeline ever. Um But, you know, I think uh, Canadians have shown that climate change is a top priority uh, again and again in poll after poll, even as we're going through many other crises. And so, you know... If uh, we're headed into a federal election this year, I think Trudeau's yeah. going to have a hard time convincing people uh, that pipelines, you know, fit in his climate change plan because the numbers just uh, don't add up. And even his own government, uh, you know, released two reports late last year that show that Trans Mountain and Keystone XL aren't going to be needed if we even try and meet our climate target.
0: All right, welcome back. Here we go now with federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole feeling the heat on right-wing activism in the conservative party. And there's been a sharp focus on this since the storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th by far-right extremist supporters of Donald Trump. The liberals here in Canada pointing the finger at O'Toole accusing him of dabbling in Trumpism, using Trump-style political tactics and talking points. And you can tell he feels the heat on it. He issued a two-page statement this week saying there is no room for the far right in the Conservative Party. Aaron O'Toole was on the show last week. We talked about this, and I asked him if Trump-style tactics are part of the Conservative Party. Here's
1: what he told me. The Conservative Party is totally different from the Republican Party in the U.S. I think Canadians know that. My own personal track record was joining the military to serve this country and defend its institutions and its people. That's why I've been reaching out to new Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, LGBTQ Canadians. I want a strong and diverse Conservative Party to get our economy back on track. We're we're looking at at giving a poorer country to our kids, Mike. And that's what I'm going to stand for. Mr. Trudeau, who does not have a good record, is going to try and use the division in the U.S. and bring it here.
0: Okay, now the latest on this. Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole says he will move to kick Derek Sloan out of the Conservative caucus and prevent him from running again. Derek Sloan, of course, the controversial Ontario Conservative MP, a social conservative, and O'Toole says he will kick Sloan out of the party after he became aware that Sloan had accepted a contribution to his leadership campaign from a well-known white supremacist in Canada. Okay, let's talk about all of this now with my guest, Brian Lilly, political columnist at the Toronto Sun. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on.
1: Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm going to quibble with something that you said in the introduction, though, uh, Mike, and and that's that Paul Frum or any white supremacist is in any way right wing, um, that they have anything to do with conservatives. I mean, Paul Frum is someone who... Uh, describes himself as a white nationalist. He doesn't like the term white supremacist, but he's a white nationalist. And and these guys tend to idolize a guy named Adolf Hitler who led the Nazi party, the National Socialist Workers Party. There's nothing conservative about that. I don't want to say that these guys are NDP or left-wing either, but this constant uh, portrayal as Nazis or their sympathizers as right-wing is, I think um incorrect
0: okay okay well paul Fromm. this guy's been a character in canada for for a long time Some a lot of people would hear that name and not even recognize the name but but he's been around a long time and sort of the fringe of of this sort of white supremacist movement in canada he's been there a long time and it turns out that derek sloan had accepted a campaign donation for him not a very large one listed the donation was not even under paul Fromm's name or was on a different name
1: right it was under Frederick P. Uh, P- From. Yeah. You now, if you said to me, Paul From, I would recognize the name. I've sure. been around Canadian politics a long time. Right, uh, the guy is quite literally a deplorable. I don't use that in the Hillary Clinton turn- uh, sense of anyone I disagree with. No, he's he's someone who believes that white people are better than anybody else, and um, that is that that is not something I can be on board with. That's not something that most Canadians are on board with, regardless of political stripe. Um, so, you know, he sent in this donation under a different name and I wouldn't have recognized the name Frederick P from, yeah. uh, I am told he may have used the address Paul at Paul from .ca or .com. As he did that, perhaps somebody should have caught it. Should it have been, um, Uh, Derek Sloan should have been the party. My understanding is it went through the party website. Um, There used to be a time when parties would have lists of people they would would not accept donations from, but donations were processed manually then. Now, uh, you can join the Conservative Party just by going online, paying, I think it's $25, and you automatically get a membership. The Liberals, you don't even need to pay. You just sign up as a supporter right. and you get to vote. What? So all of the parties have these weird little things that allow these people who are opportunists to to try and and work their way in and they'll find any cracks to do that.
0: Okay, well, Derek Sloan has said he was unaware of this donation. When he became aware of it, he, he took steps to make sure the money w- money was returned. Uh, he said it was a $131 a donation, very small. His campaign, when he ran for the conservative leadership, he said he raised over a million dollars, which is extraordinary, really. Um, so he says he didn't know about it. What do you think about Aaron O'Toole, though, moving to kick him out of the conservative caucus over this?
1: Um. Look, I'm of two minds of this. One, I, I probably never would have signed Derek from or Derek Sloan's, excuse me, slip there. I would not have signed Derek Sloan's nomination papers to run for the Conservatives in 2019. Uh, he's, I, I'm not impressed by the guy. I, I'm i not a fan of his. Uh, but being kicked out of the party that has already accepted you, that has processed a donation, that has taken their 10 percent cut. And then they turn around and say, well, because you took this, even though the guy didn't use his real name, you're out. I find that a bit much. I also find it a bit much that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau stood on the steps of Rideau Cottage today. While he has a real issue, which is the fact that we are going to have a cut of between 20 and 80 percent of vaccines in terms of deliveries from Pfizer over the next yeah. several weeks. Um, he stood there and talked about how awful this was, that the Conservatives did this, and they need to clean up their house. Well, as CTV reminded us all, and I'd forgotten that I'd even written this, uh, just before Christmas, I wrote a piece on all the crazy people and organizations that had received the wage subsidy. Two organizations headed up by Paul Frum received the federal government wage subsidy. So if it is beyond the pale for Derek Sloan to take $131 from Frederick P. from, then how is it better for the federal government to give far more than $131? We don't know what the wage subsidy was, but I guarantee you is bigger than $131. How is it okay for them to give our tax dollars Oh. To this guy.
0: Let me put this to you for your thoughts, Brian. I think that O'Toole had been sort of tolerating Derek Sloan up to this point because the, the conservative, the social conservative wing of the conservative party is uh, an influential part of the party and he did not want to alienate them. But I think at this point, especially after the storming of the U.S. Capitol and the events we saw in Washington on January 6th, he's he's feeling the heat on it you can tell and when this story came out about this donation from this character i think he thought to himself this is my opportunity to to sort of get rid of this guy to try and take a stand against him so in some some people might say it's not fair sloan says he's going to fight it he's going to try and fight to stay in the conservative party but i think that o'toole saw the opportunity uh, to get rid of him once and for all because he knows he's vulnerable on these points but your thoughts
1: uh, look, I'm not somebody that's going to cry a single tear over Derek Sloan being gone from the Conservative Party of Canada. I don't think he's the the right face for the Conservative Party, who I want to win. I'll be open up front for people that don't realize that about me already. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit odd for Aaron O'Toole to be doing this, considering that he courted Derek Sloan's voters yeah. during the leadership race. Uh, you know, there, there were two social conservatives in the last leadership race. One of them was credible and good, and she won an awful lot of support. In fact, she won most of Western Canada, uh, despite being a black wa- immigrant woman from Toronto. Um, she won all of Western Canada, where we're, we're constantly told, uh, well, the conservatives out there are just redneck racists who hate anybody that is white. She won the vote. Yeah, in you're speaking, you're speaking of uh, Leslyn Leslie Lewis, Lewis,
0: and she's been a guest on the show here. Yeah,
1: it, it, And Leslyn Lewis is a bright, articulate woman who, uh, you know, puts forth social conservative views in a way that doesn't offend people. Derek Sloan offends people, including myself, um, who is open to social conservatives and has argued for social conservatives to have a voice in the conservative party. Um, so I'm not going to cry a, a, a single tear over him leaving but there are a lot of questions about how all this came out. Was this, uh, you know, an internal hit job by the conservative mm. party headquarters, no. or was this, you know, bitter tears by some of the people, that backed Peter McKay, who said, oh, by the way, they took money from this guy. Um, $131 is, is not enough to buy anyone's loyalty. It's also a very weird donation amount. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Liberals shouldn't be, um, Considering they had a, a leader that ran in the last election who's now our prime minister who couldn't tell us how many times he wore blackface and mm-hmm. whose own government gave our tax dollars to Paul Frum's organizations, I don't think that he should be giving any lessons to anyone on this. Okay. The, the real issue is he cannot give us a proper vaccine supply mm-hmm. for the people of British Columbia, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, or any other province
0: all right welcome back to the show let's talk about kids in high school now and how the pandemic has impacted their class time and instructional hours under the bc schools act kids are required to receive a minimum number of hours of instruction per school year some parents in vancouver say their kids are getting shortchanged. the number of instructional hours for their kids in high school has plummeted let's talk about this now my guest is nathan hume uh, he's got kids in the public school system in high school, uh, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Nathan, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for your interest in the story. Yeah, you bet. Can you tell me, how is this supposed to work? Like, what is the concern in the, in, in the Vancouver School District now about
4: instructional time for high school kids? Sure. And let me be clear, the, the Vancouver School Board is failing all secondary students across the district. It's not just about my daughter or kids at her school, Churchill. It affects kids on the east side, the west side, south van, downtown, and it's really simple. Under the School Act, every school district has to provide 952 hours of instruction each year. Right. And right. the VSB right. is providing approximately one third of that during this school year. Wow. Whereas other school districts like North Van, Richmond, Burnaby, all the big ones surrounding Vancouver are managing to provide twice that or more. They're still not quite at the minimum required by law, but they're doing way better than the Vancouver School Board.
0: Okay, you mentioned that you've got a daughter in high school, she's in grade eight, I understand. Yes, she is. Okay, what what kind of uh how are how are her instructional days looking? Like how much instruction time is she getting at school?
4: Sure. So the way the schedule works there is uh, an in-person block each day of an hour and 45 minutes there are two hours of what's called flex time and that's been explained as time to clean the school Uh, most kids receive no instruction whatsoever during that time there might be a music class set there for some of the year or skills training for kids who need additional skills and that's important but typically there's no instruction there And then there's an hour and 45 minutes of so-called remote instruction for each student. And our experience across the board has been that there is no such thing as remote instruction for our kids. I recognize some students might be getting some remote instruction, but typically you get an emailed assignment and it is homework. And homework's not instruction. It's completely unsupervised. And it's what kids were doing anyways before all this happened. Homework's not instruction.
0: Okay, so you figure she's getting around about, what, one-third uh, of the instruction time that's required under the Act? Is that right?
4: Yeah, so the 952 uh, hours works out to about 25 and a half hours a week. Yeah. And kids in Vancouver, again, it's not just about my daughter. This is every kid in Vancouver are getting 8.75 hours of in-person instruction. If they get any remote instruction at all, it's arbitrary. It's completely up to the school and the teacher they are the schools and teachers are not being required to provide certain instruction. Uh, they are not supported properly. I'm this is about the VSB. This is not about right. individual teachers. It is about the VSB's failure to set them up for success and to help our kids get the instruction they need.
0: Right. And when you take a look at the instruction time that high school kids in, in the Vancouver School District are receiving and you compare that. To other school districts, could you, could you just expand a little bit on that? So you're, you're saying that kids in other school districts are getting way more instruction time than kids in Vancouver,
4: correct? Absolutely. Um, yeah. We've been told that 40 out of 60 school districts in the province are back in person full time. I right. know that most school districts across the Lower Mainland have grade eights and nines back full time because they recognize the importance of getting those kids a firm foundation, both socially and educationally in those early years of high school whereas kids in grade 8 and 9 in Vancouver are going for an hour and 45 minutes a day. And right. grades 10 through 12 in surrounding districts are also getting significantly more instruction than kids in Vancouver.
0: Right. Now, the Vancouver School District has brought in a system to try and keep kids safe uh, and staff and teachers safe during the pandemic, right? So they're doing, how, how is that working? So kids are going to school on what, alternating days to, to so in order to socially distance and keep the classes smaller? Is that how it's working?
2: well the vsb
4: like other school districts has implemented a number of measures from you know hand washing to social distancing to adjusting their schedule that is right but again other school districts are managing to keep kids safe and the schools are safe and the schools are going to stay open and still managing to provide more than twice as much instruction Hmm. they're doing it through more in-person instruction more remote instruction more of everything and the vsb can do the same thing And as the Minister of Education said today in the CDC, she expects them to do the same thing. She expects them to comply with the law and provide the full amount of instruction our kids are entitled to. Everyone else can do it. The VSB can do it, too.
0: Okay, my guest is Nathan Hume. He's a lawyer in Vancouver. We're talking about kids and instruction time in high school in, in the Vancouver School District. This is very interesting. Uh, do, you, do So is the missing link here or the problem is the remote instruction like kids are supposed to be what learning online when they're not physically in a classroom. So they're supposed to be getting instruction online when they're at home. And that's not happening. Like, is that the problem?
4: That's certainly part of the problem, Mike. Again, uh, the school district has planned for about an hour and 45 minutes in person and an hour and 45 minutes remote. And again, that remote instruction is really not happening for most kids. But even if you added those two numbers up, you're still not getting to the five and a half hours that they need every day. So again, we need more in person done safely. We need more real remote instruction done properly. And other school districts are doing this. So put the two together. The kids need to be back in, in school, and ideally they could be back full-time in person. We'll get there, but we need to get the kids learning first. They need the full you, five and a half hours a day.
0: Is your concern that kids could be getting left behind, You know, especially as, they're, as kids in later grades are preparing for post-secondary college and university, that this leaves them
4: behind or at a disadvantage, Absolutely, that's part of the concern. I mean, in my daughter's case, she is in eighth grade. I'm mostly concerned about her social time and, and meeting friends and feeling good about going to high school. Okay. She has time to catch up on the educational stuff. Yeah. Kids in 11th and 12th grade, they don't have that time. And again, other kids all around this province and in other jurisdictions are getting a real education this year. And those are the kids who will be going to university, college, and the workforce next year. And it's not fair to those children that they're being shortchanged, and that the VSB is refusing to do anything about it.
0: Okay, what kind of reaction are you getting from other parents? Like, you've been speaking up about this. Have you been hearing from other parents with similar concerns?
4: Yeah, we've been working on this for months, Mike. I've been working with a group of dedicated parents, about 15 or so, uh, since September and October. Uh, We've heard from hundreds of parents. We've got petitions signed by hundreds of parents that, are in the hands of the VSB and the ministry. Um, This has been a long haul. We really have been working at this every week for four months now. Uh, Very glad that the ministry is finally paying attention. Having the minister stand up and say she agrees with us and she expects the VSB to take action to comply with the law is very important. We need to know what they're going to do. We need the minister to keep the pressure up and make this happen. But it's it's really good to hear that she agrees with us and expects them to uh, take action on this.
0: Yeah, the uh, the education minister today saying that there's a review of this situation going on. I understand the school district. The school district is also saying they're, they're taking a look at, they're reviewing the situation. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, and that's about yeah. all we know. They're being pretty cute about this. They say they might have an announcement tomorrow night about some potential changes to the school schedule they're not tipping their hand as to what that might be i'll be clear mike they have told us repeatedly uh they aren't going to change anything until they're forced to so hopefully Hmm. they've changed their mind hopefully they're taking parents and their obligations under the law very seriously right now Uh, but we'll have to wait and see if they announce something tomorrow i hope it complies with the law because that is the minimum that they are required to do right
0: all right welcome back my guest is nathan hume he's a vancouver lawyer and dad he's got a daughter in high school in vancouver he says vancouver high school kids getting short changed on instructional time uh during covid uh phone me on it now and tell me what you think 604-280-9898 star 9898 in your cell let's go right to your phone calls toby in vancouver hi
5: oh hi there thanks hi. for having me sure I was just listening to what Nathan said, and I I just want to echo it. I I have two daughters who are also in public school at uh, Vancouver School Board, one of whom is in elementary school, and she's there five days a week full time, whereas my daughter in grade 11 is only there less than two hours a day. And I I just really worry about the inequities within our own system, but when my daughter next year is in grade 12, and she's looking to apply to university, how she's going to compare against her peers who are outside of Vancouver or who are in um, private schools and just the uh, the inequities across the system. Even within VSB, there are high school programs, specialty programs, such as the truck program, where kids yeah. are going full time face to face. And so how does the VSB justify that?
0: Okay, Toby, thank you very much for the call. Well, Nathan, how does the VSP justify this? I mean, when you've asked for an explanation, what do they tell you?
4: Well, I haven't asked them that particular question, how they justify the inequities between different high school programs, but I can tell you that when I've raised this concern and others have raised this concern about the shortfall, yeah. we've done that many times, they have consistently pointed to the Ministry of Education and said, well, the ministry approved our restart plan, so therefore we're okay. The mm-hmm. problem with that is the restart plan said nothing about reducing instructional time. And the minister has been clear. She's finally come out and said it this morning. She shares our concerns. They need to come into compliance with the law. So the VSB doesn't have that to hide behind anymore. Okay,
0: interesting. Let's go to Michelle in Vancouver. Hi, Michelle.
6: Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have a daughter at Churchill, uh, grade 11. And yeah, it's been tough since last spring. I think what's tough is the, the motivation to keep them going because there is Very little in-school instruction. Um, And then if there's any bumps in the road, it's really tough to um, sort of reach out to teachers and um, connect with them. It's just, it's almost nil to impossible. So, yeah, it's been tough. I mean, she, she does go to school for like an hour and 45 minutes every day. Yeah. And then she does the remote learning, but like your your guest said, it's just homework assigned, and this is when you have to get it done by. There's no instruction.
0: Okay, like when you said you were having trouble like connecting with the teacher, you mean mm-hmm. like if you reach out to the teacher, they just they don't respond or what happens? Yeah,
6: I, I reached out to a teacher. Um, I never got a response. I have never gotten a response, and so I hmm. went straight to the counselor because he bent over backwards to do anything that, you know, I was asking for. But the yeah. teacher, I got, I, I, I don't know, they just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. So, huh. yeah, I okay. got nothing. Okay,
0: yeah. well, let me, thanks for the call. Let me ask uh, Nathan about that. You mentioned, Nathan, that you were saying that this is not down to teachers. You're saying this is a school board issue, but your thoughts.
4: Yeah, my, my point is that the school board created this problem. It created this problem for teachers, for students, for their parents, uh, and now we're all being forced to deal with it. And I'm very sorry to hear about the experience that Michelle had with her uh, kid's teacher. In my experience, the teachers we've dealt with have been very responsive, but it it shouldn't come down to individual parents and individual teachers advocating for different things. It's a systemic problem. It affects every kid in the school district. And it should be dealt with at the school district level. And that's right. what we need the ministry to stay on
5: the BSB yeah. about.
4: Get it done. Fix the problem. Okay. It can be fixed next week.
5: Okay.
0: Lori on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Lori.
5: Hello. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. I have a question for your guest and also a comment just to okay. echo a little bit of what he has said. Yeah. I have a daughter in high school who is a very sociable child, um, and the reduced mm. hours at school severely reduced, has really affected her mental well-being to the point that she's asked us to send her to a therapist. And to sort of help cope with that too, we've let her take on a job, which she does after her class. So as your guest said, there's basically no instruction, nothing being done in flex time, so much so she's able to take work after school during the day and that has really helped her mental well-being which is why we allowed it Mm -hmm. but that's what we've come to and I've sort of commented before that I feel like we're living in Victorian England where my child is going to work instead (laughs) of school so that's sort of the reality that I think a lot of parents are facing and a question for your guest that you had sort of um, touched on earlier does he know of um in terms of feedback, I know there have been a couple of surveys that have gone out. Does he know the results of any of them that have been released, like from the District pack or the VSB? Does he know anything about them?
0: Nathan, we've got about a minute left here. Nathan.
4: Sure. Yeah, I, I do know a little bit about them. Uh, the DPAC is the Assembly of Parent Advisory Committees. And the overwhelming feedback there was that parents want kids in school more. I believe a similar result was found by the VSB when they surveyed parents. Parents and kids want more time in school, and we need the VSB to act on this now. We need the ministry to stay on them, and we need to make sure that this doesn't continue into next school year. The VSB is planning mm. for the next school year already, and they've given no indication that they're going to increase you, instruction. Then, are you hearing from
0: any other parents about kids struggling? Like you know, the caller sharing a story about about her her child struggling, you know, uh, emotionally, mentally. Are you hearing that from other
4: parents? Absolutely, I hear yeah. about that multiple times a week. Yes.
0: Okay. Kids it, are struggling a-
4: emotionally, socially, academically. In every way, they've had the rug yanked out from under them, and there's no one—no one's being held accountable for it. No one's standing up right. and taking responsibility. Thank you for coming on today. Thank you very
0: much. All right, welcome back to the show. Do you still have your Christmas lights and de- decorations up at your home? And if you're thinking about taking them down soon, well, maybe you should wait. There's a lot of people out there who have decided to keep them up and on, and it's for a good cause. Our show contributor John Jang joins us now to explain what it is. John.
7: Hey, good morning, Mike. It's January 19th, and as you make your way around town running errands, picking up groceries, or simply going to work, you might notice there are a lot of homes that are still decorated with Christmas lights and displays, even though Christmas was three and a half weeks ago. Now, normally you would think, well, this is just pure laziness, but not this year. This year, it might still be up for a very good cause. And to explain further, I'm now joined by BC Hydro spokesperson Susie Reeder. And Susie, always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time here this morning.
8: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me.
7: Now, it does seem that according to a new survey, BC Hydro has found that many British Columbians have decided to keep up their Christmas lights for an important cause. Uh, Could you explain here exactly what that is?
8: So we found a third of British Columbians uh, who put up holiday decorations this year are leaving them up longer uh, to combat sort of the COVID-19 blues, as we began calling it. Um, a new survey conducted on behalf of BC Hydro finds four in five uh, British Columbians put up holiday decorations or lights this year, and about 50% of those decorated indoors and outdoors. And we found that those in northern BC uh, topped the list of most likely to decorate at home.
7: I love hearing that and finding four out of five British Columbians decorated their homes this past uh, Christmas season. Maybe I'm assuming, but that number seems higher than what we would normally see, which tells me there's definitely a lot of people who wanted to get into that festive spirit and then use it as a distraction to really just get away from what's going on in the world.
8: Yeah, absolutely. So decorating is one of the few traditions this holiday season that was sort of COVID-proof, and that may be why so many uh, British Columbians are keeping their decorations up longer. Um, We actually found about 10% expect to keep them up past mid-January, and uh, some even plan to wait until February or later to take them down. So um, another thing we found is that those living in the lower mainland and southern interior are the most likely to still have their holiday decorations on display in February.
7: Let me play this clip. The mayor of North Vancouver, Linda Buchanan, was on the Jill Bennett Show about a week and a half ago, talking about this exact idea. Take a listen here.
6: In the city of North Van, we actually, as a municipality, we do keep up our Christmas uh, lights displays that we that we put up as an as a municipality. We do keep them up till the end of January, which is something that I instigated when I first became the mayor. Um, and so I just. Uh, tagged onto his tweet and said, this is a great idea, and I encouraged my residents to do the same. Um, really, just let's keep this spirit going from coast to coast. You know, we've just gone through Christmas. We've just, you know, we're into our 10th month of a pandemic, and let's just keep people's spirits up.
7: Maybe that helps to explain why so many of these Christmas lights are still up. Clearly, there is an interest in different communities across Metro Vancouver wanting to keep morale high, and homeowners are happy to play along and keep those lights plugged in.
8: Yeah, well, uh, 90% uh, of British Columbians that we surveyed in a previous survey um, said that COVID was going to change their holiday plans, It's just going to change the tune of their entire holiday, of course. Uh, so about 20% actually added more decorations to begin with. Um, and we saw a lot more of those Clark Griswold-style displays, those big, big lighting displays this year. Um, nearly 10% of those surveyed uh, said that they were going to put up 10 strands of lights or more. Um, So we consider that a mega display, more than 10 strands. And when we asked um, in this new survey why people were going to leave their lights up longer, uh, most said it was to brighten the COVID-19 winter. And because they're spending more time at home and they want to make their home a comfortable, bright place to be in.
7: Now, depending on your Christmas lights display, the decision to keep them up for an extended period of time past Christmas, uh, it's probably showing up on your utility bill. So I'm wondering if there's a way that people can look into cutting down some of those costs while still wanting to keep up those, uh, those displays. Last thing we want is for people to decide, well, financially, I can't afford to keep these lights up any longer.
8: Well, switching to LEDs, um, we did find in a previous survey that about 25% of British Columbians still use some incandescent lights. So uh, you can actually save about $40 uh, by switching eight strands of incandescent lights to energy efficient LEDs. Uh, and LED lights, they last longer. They last about 10 times longer. Um, another thing you can do is plug into timers. So um, so your lights are only on when you want them to be. Uh, and that'll reduce your electricity costs. Uh, also using my hydro. Um, you can see how your decorating impacts your electricity use and uh, you can go to bchydro.com to access that tool.
7: Certainly hope we'll be talking about these lights even a month from now. She is Susie Reeder from BC Hydro. Susie, thank you so much for your time here today.
8: Thank you. Have a great day.
0: All right. I'm joined by John Jang. Now, John, good job on that one. So I don't know. What do you think? We took our our decorations down pretty much right away.
7: (laughs) That's okay, uh, because she said four (laughs) out of five British Columbian homes have put up Christmas lights, which was a lot. But I was the fifth because for transparency, you know, I live in a studio apartment, Mike, and my windows are south facing, but I'm on the fifth floor. And so what I see is my parking lot and the back alley. And I figured, well... (laughs) As much as I want to get into the festive spirit, uh, I'm probably not putting up lights because I don't think the alley cats need to see or uh, enjoy my decorations this year.
0: (laughs) Hey, maybe next year
7: maybe next year. Yeah, I mean, no. you, you never know. Uh, maybe, maybe there's going to be a change for me. Maybe I'll move to someplace better where I can actually proudly put up some Christmas lights displays. But I love the idea because yeah. uh, in, in, in a way, yes, it's about getting festive and keeping morale high and making sure you're happy throughout the pandemic. But I also look at it as a way of solidarity and showing frontline healthcare workers that, hey, we're still behind you every step of the All way, right? even if it's a small action as keeping Christmas lights on.
0: Good stuff. Thank you, John.
7: You got it. Thank you, Mike.